Hi, and welcome to Visible and Necessary, a study's premier series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. George Telforis, and this episode is part of our special series on COVID-19. In this series, we will be tackling the important question about how we can, as people with disabilities, stay safe from COVID-19 as Australia opens up. My first guest is the Chair of Disability and Health at Melbourne University, Professor Anne Kavanagh. And we talk about what's needed to get the Australian vaccination program back on track for people with disabilities and how we need to do better to vaccinate people who have high and complex needs. We also discuss the role of rapid antigen testing in the disability sector. Hi Anne, thanks for joining us. Thanks George, great to great to join you. Look, you were on our show last year and when COVID just started, really, and, and a lot's happened since then, hasn't it? Yeah, it sure has. It feels like a very long, well over 18 months now, nearly two years of uh, working on COVID and trying to improve responses for people with disabilities. Yeah. It's been a very big year for us, and especially yourself. I know that you do a lot of work um, in this area. Just so people get a sense of um, what you do. Can you just tell us a bit about what you've been working on? Yeah, so I guess I've had a, a, a few roles, but um, in terms of my research, I've done a lot of research in this area over the pandemic as well as being involved in advising government and also uh, working with advocacy organisations and and also other public health experts. So the research really is concentrated on, um, uh, has been mainly focused on the disability health, the disability support workforce, looking at their risks of infection, infection control procedures, use of PPE, and then um, access to vaccines. But we've we've done another, we've done other little bits of work. Um, looking at uh, also vaccine uptake among people in phase 1b of the vaccine rollout um, and but and also critiquing the government's response to, to COVID-19 but really through our Centre for Research Excellence in Disability and Health we've as a we're, we're public health researchers and so when COVID came along we saw that we had a real role to play in in helping shape appropriate responses um, to what is a real public health emergency. Yes, yes, that's what we all want to do. I'd like to start with the basics. Um, for people who might not be aware, why, why are people with disabilities um, more at risk of illness and, um, and uh, this hospitalisation as yeah. a result of uh, COVID-19? In terms of individual factors, um, many people with disabilities do have um, medical conditions that put them at risk if they got COVID because uh, they might have compromised immune systems or respiratory systems. 
um, that put them at risk if you get COVID. Some people with disabilities require support, um, which requires more contact with other people. Um, and so they have a lot of people who, who um, are paid or unpaid that might provide support. And the paid support workers might go between a number of other people with disabilities. So the risk of, of um, transmission of infection is higher just simply because of the contact people are having and the types of contact which might be quite close um, in a close, close proximity. And as we know, uh, COVID is predominantly airborne. The, and then I, I guess the other issue which um, is, is, has been there for a long time is just the systemic problems with the health system and with people with disabilities navigating the health system. We know um, for a long time there's been discrimination and prejudice within the health system, difficulties in getting appropriate um, access to care and so forth, and all those cracks have... Um, emerged in in the COVID-19 um, scenario and I, I think that those those factors together and all and I think the other thing that's been problematic when we look back at the pandemic is we have the disability system not um, service system not really re able to respond to a public health emergency and the health system um, which we have known for a long time, which has not been providing, um, and as the Royal Commission has shown in particular, that the health system that isn't responsive to the needs of people with disabilities. So, um, and and the intersections between them mean that, or that people with disabilities tend to fall through the gaps. The vaccination has been a real problem. Yeah, uh, it's been relatively slow when we were promised. Uh, that disabled people would be unprioritised. And the the sad thing that I, you know, felt was that we, we were promised prioritisation and we didn't quite get that in, in the end, did we? No, and I share the immense disappointment with that. I think we were very excited that we actually um, had got prioritisation and, and thought that, you know, for once we'd overcome some of the policy barriers, but it completely fell down in in uh, the implementation or the rolling out of the vaccine strategy. And, and I think that um, that has been an enormous failure of government in the role in, in the pandemic in getting vaccinations to people with disabilities who we did prioritise because they knew we knew were at risk in COVID and international evidence shows us that that again and again and again and um, and that you know even though we haven't had the deaths in Australia you know that we have overseas sure as hell if we do have a bigger pandemic here it will be disabled people who will be disproportionately affected and that's why we wanted to prevent that by getting the vaccines out and, and we need to do a lot better with the vaccinations and um, especially for people who have complex needs. Um, mm -hmm. I, I remember you were telling me about um, your son who um, has a, a disability and I, I guess I, um, I, 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 when I heard the story, I thought I want to I wanna talk to Anne about this in my uh, podcast because I think people don't actually 
see how complex it can be for some people. Yeah, I think this is very true. I um, so shall I tell you the story of um of optimizing? Yeah, yeah. Let me just tell you a bit, bit about the sun and uh, yeah, and and how how it was how it was solved. Yeah. So um, my son has a, an intellectual disability and in, in autism, and he's been he's very um, as many um, uh, people with autism and intellectual disabilities. He's very, very frightened of any medical procedure. Um, so we we were really we were really worried about how to get a va- uh, her, uh, him a COVID vaccine. And uh, our first attempt was when we saw um, his paediatrician for the last time because he's now eighteen. When we went to the children's hospital, and um, we we attempted to get go through the um, immunisation clinic there and we had a little bit of sedation um, but it was not as well planned as we had thought through and he was too scared in the busy environment of the children's hospital um, despite having a little bit of Valium to take the edge off his anxiety. So um, that didn't work and we went away thinking that the only way we were ever going to be able to get um, uh, him a vaccine was actually to have much heavier sedation, more equivalent to a general anaesthetic. Now, that's a really big decision to make for someone to get a vaccination, uh, to have to actually give them a much heavier level of sedation than uh, than um, a benzodiazepine like Valium or, or, or some people call it diazepam. So we, we thought um, what... We made those bookings anyway because we thought we should we we had to get him vaccinated because he was at risk and likely to be exposed to a lot of people, but it was with some reluctance and so we then decided we'd bring the disability liaison officers at um d h h s my partner rang them, and um they were absolutely terrific because we talked about his Requirement and requirements. I should go back and say that if he if he had have gone through the system through the children's hospital of having more uh, akin to general anaesthetic, he would have had to have wouldn't have had his first dose till tomorrow. That was the earliest we could have got in, so he wouldn't be vaccinated now, whereas he's fully vaccinated. Um, we rang the disability liaison officer and said, you know, these are these are what's happening. You know, this is these are his. He's very anxious. Um, he never goes into a doctor's surgery. He's, you know, very scared about needles. You know, you won't actually be able to examine him. It's really difficult. These are the issues. But let's let's. What sort of environment can you provide? Can you provide that might work? And they, they talked us through various options, and one of them was coming to the home. And we actually decided not to do that because we thought that would be um, not such a great place for him because he'd start to become fearful of visitors coming to the home so we didn't want to you know create a sense that home wasn't a safe place so we the the disability liaison officer um said okay well there's this particular clinic um it's very small it only has six cubicles and we'll book out two two um two immunisation spots and we'll make sure he's the only person there so there's not too much going on and he can be supported. Um, so so that uh, and then we visited the vaccination centre and talked to them about Declan. 
oh, about my son going. And um, and then Ev and I decided we'd actually get him supported by three support workers. So he had three support workers come with him to the clinic after having had Valium. We we didn't go because we thought we'd actually make him more anxious. <laughs> so um, he we rang the clinic. They had him all ready for him to come right the way in. He was brought in, supported by the workers. He was scared and frightened, but he got he got he did it um, with the help of a bit of Valium and a lollipop afterwards. But um, <laughs> I think what it showed is, and so he's he's now had his second. He went back to the that same place. He was prepared to go back to it again. So I think. Um, what it showed was it was difficult, but with a lot of planning um, and a lot of people from the vaccination nurse, you know, briefing her to the centre, allowing us to go in and have a look at what it looked like and planning how, where he would walk and where he would go and how the workers would support him and making sure he had the paediatrician giving him the Valium. Everybody was involved in coming up with a plan that enabled him to be supported to be vaccinated and not vaccinated so it was a a lot of work <laughs> but what i love about that story is a you know your son got vaccinated less importantly um the the other thing i love about it was that it showed that there are health professionals who are really willing to do what it takes Yes. Um, and, and make adjustments and, you know, look out the rooms and whatever's needed, right? And this is this is a thing that, that I often find people don't understand is that, you know, we do often need things done, you know, quite differently. It's not always about feeding us into the system. No. The system needs to, you know, adjust to what we need. So, for things to work. Yeah, I love that comment. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it was a combination of uh, the expertise of the disability liaising officer who knew all the vaccination centres and knew lots of things about them from where they set up to the kind of people who were in them to get that flexibility. And then the vaccination centre itself who were really willing to go the extra mile and, you know, um, you know, were prepared for us when we got there. Um, you know, it, it was really, it really was best practice, if you like. We should, we should be seeing that in all kinds of healthcare, and um, it, but, and it can happen, you know, uh, but it doesn't, unfortunately. And I dread to think how many other people haven't been able to get over the hurdle that we got over. Um, for him to be vaccinated. I feel there's a lot out there who aren't vaccinated because they haven't had that option yet. Well, hopefully there are some people listening who, yeah, will, will think that, yeah, it is possible no matter how how complex things might feel, that you just need the right person at the other end of the phone sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, make that step. Yeah, I think the DLOs in Victoria are really good service and I don't think they've got them in other states. I think it's actually, it's kind of almost like a system navigator for someone with a disability, you know. Um, you don't go cold into a health system that's not designed for us, you know. Yeah, yeah, Victoria's uh, definitely done some good work in, in that space. Um, I'd like to turn now back to your um, 
your professor hat on, if that's okay. Um, I know that you recently worked with a group of experts to um, put together some guidelines on what we need to do to um, keep people with disabilities safe from COVID. And I'd really like to um, focus on some of those suggestions and recommendations. Thanks, George. And, of course, you were part of the group that put those guidelines together. Um, and we've worked a lot during the, the pandemic. Um, we have. We have spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yes, we have. Um, so uh, this group is a group of um, uh, experts from a range of different sectors and disciplines. So there are economists and political scientists, infectious control, disease control specialists, and there's a small group of them involved in putting this working part, this paper together from, it's called OzSage. Um, and well, why is it called OzSage? I don't quite uh, Well, there is a SAGE, um, which I've, I have to say I've forgotten what the acronym means. There's a SAGE that comes out of around COVID that's come out of England, and this is OZ, as in the Australian version of the... Um, right. Perfect. version of it. So that's why it's called OzSage. Um, but uh, the uh, so what we've done is tried to link in these guidelines, some of the other guidelines that OzSage have also put out um, and are continuing to put out around um, COVID-19 and, and Australia's response in COVID-19. So OzSage is trying to be is independent of government um, trying to provide advice to government and other organisations about how best to do this. The other issue within this pandemic um, more, and more generally in sort of knowing what's happening is the fact we, you know, we, we have very poor quality data in Australia and most of our evidence about what's happened to people with disabilities um, has 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 uh, it comes from overseas in part because we haven't had the same experience but you know um, there is a lack of transparency in reporting of the data what data is reported relates to NDIS participants only and sometimes only to a portion proportion of those participants um, so I think um, we know that the NDIS only includes um uh, about 10% of people with disabilities and so we're missing a whole bunch of data. But even even, even having said that, the NDI deaths data is not reported very frequently and is we know that the cases are undercounted in that data. So unless we know really what's happening, we can't hold government to account and we can't design new solutions. Um and I guess the the other major issue here is we need to aspire to very high vaccination targets for people with disability. It's really fantastic to see how much Australia is taking on vaccination and how high our vaccinations are in eligible populations. Um, but we really should be aiming for 100% of people with disability and their support workers and the people around them, allied health professionals um, and their families. We, sh we, we need 100%. We need 100% for all of them and we need to work until we get that last, the whole 100%. Um, and some of the people who aren't vaccinated at the moment are the people that are probably at the highest risk because they're harder, you know, the, the solutions haven't been come up with. As you and I know, a lot of people who need to vaccinate us to go into the home haven't, 
haven't had them and 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 that's really uh really problematic so we need to think about how we're going to do that much better literally very individualized solutions uh to vaccination we we've haven't had good education and communication about the vaccine to people with disabilities and I think the role of the the um, uh, DPOs or the disabled people's organizations and um, advocacy groups in reaching out to people with disabilities you know that really must be enhanced and to get to every every single person with a disability and then now <laughs> How yeah. do we get? I mean, that's a very ambitious yeah, number, 100%. I would have to be 99%. But um, how, is, um, how do we get to 100%? Like, are we doing enough that we've got mandatory vaccination for support workers? We, you know, what, what else do we need to do to get to 100%? Well, obviously, mandatory vaccination for support workers means we do get support workers vaccinated. I think we should aspire to 100%, and that means that every single person has every opportunity to get the vaccine. So, you know, we gave the example of my son, um, and that's the amount of effort or more that we'll have to go into getting a lot of people vaccinated who are not vaccinated. So it's not it's not simple as we ask that person or we ask that service to offer this person a vaccine and they didn't get it. It means following up um, and making sure someone can talk, you know, reach out to that person or, as we've talked about before, reach out to the family members who might be um it might be the blocks to that person being vaccinated. You know, it really has to be a very concerted effort to make sure we know why a person hasn't been vaccinated and that they've been given every opportunity, every chance to get that done. You know, like you, I suspect we won't get to 100, we'll never get to 100, but I'm aspiring to 100 is what we should be getting to. What do you, what do, you do with these parents who might be... Uh, vaccine hesitant, or I won't use the anti-vaxxer term because that's polarising. But um, yeah, mm. parents who you know have have um, you know, I guess decision making power over um their, their son or daughter. How 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 do we deal with that? Because that that really concerns me that there are parents out there that are that are putting their sons or daughters at risk. Yeah, I completely agree and it absolutely terrifies me that if that is the case, you know. Um, I, uh, we shouldn't take simple no's from parents yeah. as a lack of consent. You know, we, we, just, we just can't accept that. I think we, you know, um, we need to, uh, there are a range of strategies, you know, there's kind of soft strategies, I, I guess, like getting um, other parents and or other people with you know, similar disabilities to their their child, for instance, or their son or daughter, and and talking to them about why it's important and what are the risks if they're not. But I think at some point, if they keep saying no, we really need to think about whether they're acting in that person's best interests and what are the legal channels that we need to pursue to ensure that um, someone has the access to what is a very basic preventative. Um, care measure and um, because really these people are at significant risk and you know I know you share those concerns it's a real a real 
a real worry. And hopefully there are only a few of those people we can bring people around, but we don't have much time left, do we, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, so, you know, we really might need to make some hard decisions about what we do with those the, the people who aren't getting consent from their substitute decision makers. Yeah. What do you think the role of support coordinators are in this, in this area? Do you think they need to be doing more? Well, I think, yeah, it, it would be fantastic. This is the problem with the whole response to COVID. I think we've still thought there's been this kind of disability and there's been this health response, but they're completely integrated, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It's not the person with a disability doesn't have health needs. And if the support coordinator is a trusted person in that person's life, it, it's a, they're, a, they're a very helpful person to help perhaps talk to, you know, um, the person with the disability or their family members about the importance of vaccination. And this is a role, you know, that um, the NDIS could play for support coordinators or even local area coordination units. But it hasn't really been something that's been done in the pandemic, drawing on those kind of resources. Um, I think we've kind of seen our responses either health or disability, but, but not how we interact across those two systems. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but in terms of the other things that we could do, I, I'm just thinking about the Aussage um, um, recommendations that we were talking about before. Um, I, I just wanted to emphasise um, for the um, for the listeners some of the other strategies that we need to be thinking about just besides vaccination. And in Aussage, we talk about vaccine plus. So those things include not just vaccination, which is obviously the ultimate thing we want to do, but is to reduce risk of transmission. And that requires thinking about things like indoor air and the safety of indoor air. So, um, you know, particularly for people who live in, um, you know, maybe group homes or boarding houses or work in supported employment, but anywhere where someone with a disability is going, it's really important to make sure that those spaces are really well ventilated. There needs to be some um, uh, information going out to providers and to people with disabilities about how they work out, how they make the space um, safe, you know, whether they should be using HEPA filtration units or whether they can create um, some sort of additional um, ventilation. And places you know, toilets and corridors are places where there's not good ventilation. So we really need to think about that and what's the role potentially of for NDIS um, services, the Poly and Safeguard Commission, in terms of what do we do there? I listen to I mean, I've read, you know, opening a window, um, you know, it can be a really important yep. factor. And, yep. um, you know, getting one of those... Um, air purifiers are they are they a good thing or is that just uh, is that maybe a hype? No, there there are roles for the the um for those things, but I think I would recommend that people actually look at the recommendations for safety indoor air ventilation from Ausage because there's a range of hierarchy of things you can do. Obviously, opening the door and opening the window are the best things, and then there are places spaces where it's not easy to ventilate that way. Um, that, of course, you know, one thing you can do is invest in these CO2 monitors to see where there's likely to be poor ventilation and when there's 
high levels of CO2, you, you might need to think through how you're going to ventilate that space. Yeah. The other thing is compulsory mask use for workers. And I think um, it was interesting to listen to the Victorian press conference yesterday because I noticed that masks were coming, you know, recommendation that masks could stop being used indoors, you know, sort of November 24th or something, but that should still be used in other settings. I'd be very, very, uh, until we're into a much different situation, I, I think it's really important that workers continue to wear masks um, and, uh, and and they need to be trained in using them properly. I don't know about you, uh, George, but there's a hell of a lot of people who don't seem to think masks should go over their nose. They... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, masks... the, the, the people that wear them like there are chin nappies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they need to, you know, and we you need a well-fitting mask. Um, it needs to be tucked under the chin. It needs to be over the nose and so forth. And also we have a lot of um, uh, advice on that um, on the Auspage website. But I really think it's important that the workers uh, really understand the importance of mask use and putting it on properly. And the other thing I think is the use of rapid and air antigen testing of workers, you know, because... Yes. Let's um, talk about that. I'm really interested to see your views on, on how we can use this technology, which is going to be available from the 1st of November um, in in, uh, in people's homes even. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about the, um, uh, the rapid antigen testing is that, um, I mean, in England it's provided um, free to everyone. Um which is quite different than what we're planning to do in Australia. You know, the latest I heard was it's going to cost $15 a test. So who's who's going to buy them, you know? But if we did have rapid antigen testing and we were able to implement it in the workforce, you could you could um, do that with um, disability support workers, you know, several times a week or before they come on shift and make sure that that's negative before they work. Um, where needed, you could um, also do that with people with disabilities themselves. But, I, you know, it it must have a role in reducing um, the transmission because, if we, you know, if you're testing people regularly, you're going to pick up the COVID infection eventually. Not as sensitive, obviously, as the other tests, but far better to be testing people frequently with these rapid antigen tests than not to be testing them at all. Um, and I think we're all worried that testing will fall off a bit now as we've, you know, seem to be moving to a different year where we're worrying about hospitalisations and deaths and left about the number of infections and um, and people won't get tested. They must continue to get tested and people in the disability sector need to continue to make sure that people, you know, people with disabilities need to make sure that people are continuing to test themselves. So I think rapid antigen testing has an important role. I think we need to um, come up with um, some strategies and policies about how it can be used in the sector um, to give people with disabilities um, and services the guidance needed about how it could be used because, you know, it may be that the settings for people working in group homes mean that they need to be tested more regularly than people working in other settings, but we need to work out what those those particular policies should be. Um, but I think it's got a very important role going forward and I think it, I think also the real importance of making it free to everyone 
is really critical because otherwise people aren't going to buy 15 bucks a test. They're not going to pay for that for their rapid antigen test. Um, so uh, that's those are you know those are my comments around that. I think um, the quality of the tests are going to improve over time. Um, well, I suspect we'll find that they'll get more and more sensitive, and so you know we'll actually they'll actually be even better way of controlling uh, the pandemic uh, and identifying people who are COVID positive um, early. So, so I think that it, there's a lot. Rapid testing's got a really important role going forward. Um, how what, exactly what that looks like needs to be planned out, but I want government and infectious disease folk and that to work on this sort of ASAP because it's sort of too late already. We should have these policies in place as we're starting to open up. Um, you made some really good suggestions. But as I was as I was thinking of uh, listening, I was thinking, but there's so many things that we can do now, right? So yeah, double vaccination and then like a get your booster when you do you know, wear a mask, open the window, and wear, have rapid antigen testing. Like, but, but part of it kind of feels like, do we need to, do we need to um, find uh, a balance between doing all of those things and working out what our tolerance of, of risk is, I yeah. guess? That's true. I mean, it's ultimately up to the person with disability themselves how much risk you're willing to tolerate. Mm. And I think because I, I wouldn't mind seeing a human face, you know, like I haven't seen one apart from on the on the screen in two years. And oh, no, will I, I, I ever get to a point where I'll, you know, be able to see a support worker's face? Yeah, you know, just seeing someone laugh and smile, I kind of kind of yeah. miss that. Uh, oh, I do too. I agree, <laughs> and, and I think we do. You know, it's that sort of oh, we talk about the risk all the time in this space, don't we? But I think there are things that are not that disruptive to ordinary life, which um, which can be done easily. I mean, obviously, you know, if you decide you want to see yeah, the, the mask come off, it, that's a decision. But it's possibly better to do outside rather than inside, you know what I mean, to reduce the risk, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about the balance of making of making those decisions. Before we go, it's been really interesting, but I'd, I'd want to just ask, is there any final words that you want to share with people listening around, um, you know, how, how they can... Uh, adjust to living, um, you know, in in, 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 the, in the COVID world where, you know, everything's opening up. We know that there's a lot of options out there um, to stay safe. But do you have any other words of advice you'd like to end on? Well, I think um, obviously the strongest thing you can do for yourself and from everyone else in the community is to get vaccinated. So if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. And if you are vaccinated, um, I think it's really important to talk to those around you and um, encourage them to get vaccinated. Great advice, Anne. Thanks for joining me today. No worries. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. 
brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.